Section 20 of The Reign of Queen Anne, Volume 2 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 40 Retrospect. The reign of Queen Anne is beyond all question entitled to take a distinct place in history. It does not stand as one in a succession of reigns, but forms in itself an epoch. It is the coming of the new order, and does not merely mark the passing away of the old. The new order may indeed be said to have been initiated by the reign of William III, but it only came into actual existence and made its life manifest with the reign of Anne. The one condition which mainly distinguishes the new order from the old in the constitutional history of England is the recognized supremacy of parliamentary government. Of course, there was a system of so-called parliamentary government existing in Great Britain and Ireland for long ages before the Stuart dynasty had come to an end, or even had made a beginning, but then it was only a parliamentary government in name and had none of the essential qualities belonging to the institution we now recognize as the governing power in these countries. So far back as the reigns of the earlier Henrys, the principle was adopted by which a certain number of men were chosen to represent the interests of the whole community and to advise with the sovereign as to the laws and regulations necessary to be made for the general welfare. This arrangement developed into a representation by knights, citizens, and burgesses, and thus by degrees the parliament composed of lords and commons came to be established. But a parliament ruling with anything like the authority now belonging to the institution only came into existence with the revolution and the reign of William III. Then it became definitely settled that the sovereign must obtain supplies by the vote of the House of Commons, and so it was made impossible for the king to dismiss his parliament according to his own mere will and pleasure. Thus the parliament ceased to be an assembly whose whole business consisted in advising the sovereign as to the course which ought to be pursued for the general welfare of the state, as the power of voting supplies was made to rest with the House of Commons, there was a distinct control given to the representative assembly, which the sovereign could not resist or refuse to acknowledge without a breach of the constitutional law. This authority in the representative assembly came to be fully recognized as a working part of the governing system during the reign of Queen Anne. Such was, in fact, the first establishment of what we now recognize as the principle of parliamentary government. In Queen Anne's reign and during many of the reigns following, the system of representation was utterly inadequate to its supposed purpose, and the great majority of the community had no voice whatever in the election of the representative chamber, and therefore had no share in the making of the laws. But during Queen Anne's reign, the Houses of Parliament, and more especially the House of Commons, came to be a recognized power in the ruling of the state with which every sovereign must bring himself into something like accord. The era of rule by the mere will of the monarch was over and done with, and the House of Commons became one of the three elements of government. 
The time had not yet come and did not come until a much later reign when it was to be definitely settled once for all that the sovereign must act only on the advice of an administration called into power by a majority of the House of Commons. But the reign of Queen Anne saw for the first time the recognition of the principle that the sovereign could no longer act without regard for the authority of the representative chamber. The mere fact that such an authority was thus established and recognized gave to the House of Commons new motives for existence. Parliamentary debate became, with Queen Anne's reign, one of the great moving forces in the system of constitutional government. The House of Commons created a platform from which the statesman and the political orator could address the whole community. A man with a gift of eloquence knew that if he could obtain a seat in that assembly it rested only with him to make his gift a power in the state and to win for himself a fame throughout the land. There was no other avenue to influence and to fame so secure for the capacity that deserved success. It became a part of the ambition of every great family to have someone at least of its members in that chamber of debate where genuine eloquence could wake an echo throughout the whole country. The parliamentary career became a distinct object of ambition to numbers of men who might otherwise have had nothing to call them from a life of mere indolence or pleasure. During the reign of Queen Anne, some of the greatest parliamentary orators known to our political history made their mark in the House of Lords or in the House of Commons, but more especially in the House of Commons. Every reflecting student of history might easily have foreseen at the time that the influence and the power of Parliament were destined to grow greater and greater, and that no matter what the succeeding Hanoverian sovereigns might think on the subject, the representative assembly was destined to become the chief ruling power in the British Commonwealth. Queen Anne, to do her justice, seems to have recognized from the beginning the growing influence of Parliament, and more especially of the House of Commons, although she was not a woman of great intellectual capacity, and although she cannot be supposed to have given profound study to the principles of state government, yet it has to be said and bear justice to her that she seems from the first to have had a clear understanding as to the business and the duty of a constitutional sovereign. We have seen again and again in this history how Queen Anne, on some important occasions, allowed herself to bend her own will, her own prejudices, and even, it must be added, her own conscientious convictions to the earnest representations of the ministers whom she recognized as the advisers appointed for her guidance by the parliamentary constitution. The reign saw also a new and important stage of advancement in the great movement for religious equality. During many previous generations, the struggle had merely been one for ascendancy between the Church of England and the Church of Rome. When the one was in power, the other was oppressed and persecuted, and there were but two contending parties in the controversy. Before Queen Anne's reign, a new development of the question had arisen. A large and increasing number of men and women who were devoted adherents to the faith of Protestantism as opposed to that of Rome 
found themselves unable to submit their religious beliefs and practices to the absolute decrees of the state church. The Protestant dissenters and nonconformists began to assert themselves boldly and coherently to claim their right to maintain their own religious discipline and their own forms of worship independently of any decrees issued by the established Church of England. Here, then, was an entirely new question to perplex and disturb the community. Public opinion had outgrown the simpler code of earlier days which proclaimed the block or the stake as the approved and appropriate way of dealing with heretics of any order. The difficulty in the way of the downright religious persecutors was, of course, much increased by the fact that the dissenters and nonconformists declared themselves devoted to the Protestant faith and insisted that not they but the members of the state church were straying from true Protestant doctrine. The dissenters and nonconformists were numerous and influential, and they had amongst them some men of the highest capacity for controversy, whether in the pulpit or with a pen, who were not to be reduced to silence or inaction by any terrors the law could bring to bear against them. The trouble which the constituted authorities had in dealing with these controversial nonconformists was much increased by the fact that the whole system which the revolution had set up proclaimed itself to be a system of civil and religious liberty. The nonconformists were well entitled to ask what advantage they as ordinary citizens had gained by the overthrow of Rome's dominion if the State Church of England were now to be allowed to deal with them, just as the authorities of Rome might have dealt with those who disputed its doctrines and denied its supremacy. We have seen through the course of this history how time after time the government of Queen Anne made attempts to punish and to suppress every form of Protestant nonconformity, and how the most energetic attempts only seemed to add to the strength and increase the numbers of the nonconformists. Even within the fold of the Church of England itself there were, as might have been expected, numbers of able and influential public men who could not sustain the administration in such a course of policy. The age was beginning, at least in these countries, to outgrow the idea that the prison cell and the scaffold were the convincing arguments with which to sustain the religious doctrines favored by the ruling classes. We have seen also how in the House of Lords itself the attempts made to enforce Protestant conformity by penalty and disqualification were more than once resisted and defeated. More than once, the House of Lords showed itself superior to the representative chamber in enlightenment and in foresight where questions of religious liberty were brought up for consideration. The explanation of this fact is not difficult to find. Members of the House of Lords were not dependent for their position as legislators on any declarations of public opinion. No popular movement could deprive a too liberal-minded peer of his seat in the House of Lords, but a popular movement might well deprive a member of the House of Commons of his place in the representative chamber. At that time and for a long time after, the representative chamber was representative only in a very limited and figurative sense, and the vast majority of British subjects in these islands had no more to do with the election of a member of Parliament than their wives and children might have had. 
the electoral body was itself a privileged class and could not possibly be regarded as entitled to speak with the voice of the British people. Therefore, if any question arose which brought a majority of the privileged electoral body into temporary combination, a member of the House of Commons might be very likely to lose his seat because he had acted with the independence and enlightenment which a member of the House of Lords could display with impunity. All these various controversies inside and outside the Houses of Parliament had the effect of arousing the attention of the whole people to the existence of the great principle of religious equality. Even the fiercest and most passionate debates and disputes could not fail when the rage of the controversy had passed away to leave behind them some instructive lessons as to the reality of that principle and the inevitable success of its claims. Many generations indeed had yet to pass before the lessons of the great controversy which had become a political question in Queen Anne's reign came to be fully recognized in legislation. But it is not too much to say that the true doctrine of religious equality, the doctrine that no one shall suffer penalty or disqualification because of his religious faith, was for the first time set up as a constitutional principle during the reign of Queen Anne. The full meaning of the principle was not proclaimed or even perceived by many of those who were most earnest and most influential in maintaining the civil rights of dissenters and nonconformists in the days of Defoe. But these men had consciously or unconsciously carried the movement far enough to make its further progress evident and inevitable. Many of the state church Protestants who advocated at that time the emancipation of dissenters and nonconformists would have utterly refused to champion the extension of the same principle to Roman Catholics or to Jews. Many or most of the dissenters and nonconformists themselves would have drawn just the same distinction between their own claims and the claims of their fellow subjects who belonged to the Hebrew faith or who worshipped at the altars of the Church of Rome. But from the moment when it was asserted as the principle of a political party that absolute conformity to all the doctrines and practices of the state church was not necessary in order to qualify a British subject for citizenship, it must have been foreseen to many minds that the emancipation of the Roman Catholic and of the Jew was but a question of time. The reign of Queen Anne is entitled to the historical honor of having opened this new chapter in the story of England's progress. The reign of Queen Anne had not much to do with the work of what we should now call imperial administration. England had hardly yet grown to be an empire in the modern sense of the word. The conquest of India had scarcely begun, and although England had colonial possessions, the manner of maintaining them and of keeping them in good order was not of much concern to the administration at home. Some men of intellect, enterprise, and high purpose like William Penn established a colonial province of his own and managed it to the best of his power with the approval or at least the toleration of the government in England. Some adventurous company took possession of new ground at a distant part of the globe and set about enabling its members to make fortunes there, 
and Queen Anne's statesmen adopted it and recognized it as part of the Queen's dominions, but did not usually make the method of its management a direct concern of their official departments. The whole business of statesmanship was therefore much more limited in its operations than it began to be in the succeeding reigns, and it may fairly be said that the functions of a government during the reign of Queen Anne were to look after the prosperity of the British islands and to fight the French. The fame of the reign rests chiefly on its accomplishments in literature and in war. We have already given such an account of what was done in these two fields as to render any further description unnecessary in this retrospect. It may be said without undue boldness of assertion that no coming period of English history is likely to bring forth a greater military commander than Marlborough, or greater writers of prose than the writers who created the English literature of Marlborough's time. In the drama and in the fine arts, the age of Queen Anne has not much to boast, but that age certainly had an architecture all its own. That architecture does not seem to have come into being from the inspiration of any one great man or any school of men. There was really no great architect whose name is associated with the history of the reign. There was no man whose fame will go down to all time in connection with that reign in companionship with the names of some poets and many prose writers who created for it a characteristic literature. Yet it is certain that the architecture of the reign has a character peculiar to itself and is still the object of artistic admiration and of a frequently rather inartistic imitation. It is enough to make mention of Queen Anne houses and Queen Anne streets in order to conjure up in every mind the idea of an architecture quite distinctive and essentially picturesque. It was no doubt to a certain extent an adaptation from foreign models, but the adaptation was so completely and so artistically brought into harmony with the English climate and English conditions of life, with the manorial fields of English landscape and the streets of English cities, that it is still regarded as essentially characteristic of the country and the people over whom good Queen Anne came to reign. A Queen Anne country mansion seems to be the appropriate home for Sir Roger de Coverley. A Queen Anne house in town might claim to be regarded as the fitting abode of Addison or Steele. When Thackeray made up his mind to have a house built in the Kensington region to suit his ideas and his own tastes, he had it built after the most approved models of the age of Queen Anne. In days still later, and chiefly under the inspiration of William Morris, who was an artistic decorator as well as a poet, a reaction set in against the disheartening and unlovely monotony of the stucco-fronted houses jammed close to each other and each resembling the other, which had come up for the disfigurement of the life of cities in the early days of the Victorian reign. The reaction made itself manifest for the most part in a brave artistic attempt to restore to our cities and towns some of the best qualities of the architecture which belonged to the reign of Queen Anne. That reaction had beyond all question a most healthy and enduring effect, and we can see that its spirit still lives in the architect's work here and there and everywhere throughout the cities and the country places of these islands. Macaulay speaks of that vile phrase, the dignity of history, 
The great author was thus expressing his reprobation of the sort of criticism which at one time used to condemn the introduction of trivial details and commonplace illustrations into any historical narrative, as beneath the solemn gravity of a branch of literature which had a muse all to itself as its representative. Let us hope that it may not be considered quite beneath the dignity of history if we mention that the silver ornaments and vessels used in Queen Anne's reign had a peculiar value and a special hallmark of their own. Some discussion has lately been revived on the subject of Queen Anne's silver, and an interesting article in Country Life, a well-known periodical, told us in September of 1901 something about the Queen Anne mark. This mark, we read, consists of the figure of Britannia holding a trident, the lion's head erased, that is, cut off, the maker's initials, and the date letter. The writer further tells us that since this series of marks was impressed only between 1696 and 1720, any piece of plate bearing them may be roughly said to belong to the Queen Anne period, since the expression is not necessarily limited strictly to the mere period during which Queen Anne reigned, but may be fairly taken to include a few years before and after. The most characteristic part of the Queen Anne mark is the date letter. Practically every one of those letters is extremely illegible, consisting of a crabbed kind of black letter, usually but not always a capital. Ever since 1716, the London date letters have been very bold and clear, and the presence upon a piece of silver of one of these old-style letters gives positive proof, if it be genuine, that it is not more recent than the Queen Anne period. Perhaps the mere fact that a discussion has arisen on the subject of Queen Anne silver and on the question how to ascertain whether some prize relics are genuine in their value or not may be taken as an excuse for reminding the reader that a peculiar kind of silver work was one of the characteristic creations of Queen Anne's reign. Perhaps having gone so far in disregard of the dignity of history, we need not restrain ourselves from going still farther in mentioning the fact that a special value still attaches to the coins which are known as Queen Anne's farthings. We learn from an authoritative source that the common patterns of 1713 and 14 are worth one pound sterling each, and that the patterns with Britannia under a canopy and peace on a car are worth two guineas each, and that the patterns with peace on a car and without Britannia are still more rare and valuable and are worth five pounds each. The reign of Queen Anne may be regarded as the parent age of the newspaper, according to our modern acceptation of the journalist's work. There were newspapers existing in England before Queen Anne's day, but these were for the most part the brief and abstract chronicles of events given to the public as time and opportunity allowed, and no particular sheet continued very long in circulation. But with the age of the guardian, the examiner, and the spectator began the development of that newspaper press dealing in commentary and in criticism, as well as in the mere narration of events. It may be observed as a curious and significant fact in the history of our journalism that the spectator, which had little or nothing to do with political questions, accomplished perhaps more than any other journal of the same time toward the creation of a keen public interest in the reading of criticism and commentary on political subjects. 
a class or community, when once taught to take delight in the reading of daily essays on the fashions, the social habits, and the morals of the time, would not be likely to remain long without demanding a regular supply of essays on politics and parties. We have already in these volumes given some account of the journals, political and other, published during the reign of Queen Anne, and in this retrospect we merely desire to take account of the fact that the reign which saw the first genuine and practical recognition of the power of parliamentary debates saw also, and perhaps as a necessary accompaniment, the opening of that newspaper system which has since become one of the recognized institutions and powers of the modern state. The great work of what may be called philanthropic legislation can hardly be said to have come into existence during Queen Anne's reign. There were philanthropists, lovers of their kind, then, as at other periods of history, but the idea that legislation in itself had anything to do with the unrepresented classes beyond the enforcement of the criminal law had not yet become part of the ordinary legislator's creed. The practice of keeping Negro slaves in England was not declared illegal by a British court of law until more than fifty years had passed away from the death of Queen Anne. We can find in books and in pictures of Queen Anne's reign many illustrations of the fact that Negro slaves were still to be seen at that time in English households. Nothing could seem more outrageously antagonistic to all the principles of Christianity, of the moral law, and of civilization than such a practice, and yet it was regarded by the British public of Queen Anne's days as an ordinary and unobjectionable part of the social usages of the time a time when writers like Pope and Addison and Steele were the leading favorites of English readers. The criminal laws were still not merely oppressive but outrageously cruel, and the most trivial offenses against property were liable to punishment by death, and were so punished without arousing the slightest general feeling of indignation and abhorrence. We have already spoken of the prison discipline which was maintained and enforced every day, while Queen Anne was still reigning, and told how the use of the lash to men and women who were imprisoned under sentence of the law was looked upon as an interesting incident affording a natural amusement to educated spectators. The state concerned itself but little in providing means for protecting the poorest classes against actual starvation. Private benevolence and charity were left to do the best they could, out of their own resources for supplying food to the destitute, so that they might eat of it and live. There was private charity in those days as well as in ours, and there were kindly-hearted men and women ever ready to do their best for the maintenance of the very poor. But the subject did not appear to be one with which any state system was bound to trouble itself overmuch. There was no system of national education, at least in England, Scotland was much more advanced in its ideas as to popular education at that time, and many writers of good repute still encouraged and fostered the common notion that on the whole the poor were rather better off without education than with it, for the reason that the reading of books would only be likely to make poor people discontented with the lot to which it had pleased Providence to call them. Down to a very much later period in our history, 
the prevailing idea, even among men who might have known better, was that compulsory education was a sort of thing which might be well suited to despotically governed countries like some of the German states, but was not suited to the habits and the doctrines of freeborn Englishmen. We have already described the condition of the streets in the great cities and towns of England and the utter absence of any systematic protection for the safety of the most respectable citizens who might have to make their way through the public thoroughfares after darkness had set in, or indeed before it had set in. In the country districts, no care whatever was taken by the authorities, at least in any systematic fashion and by any legalized appliances, for the safety of travelers and of ordinary residents, and highway robbery by armed desperadoes was so common an occurrence as to attract but little notice. For a traveller to be stopped and robbed as he was approaching within sight of the London suburbs was regarded as a sort of mishap, like the advent of a storm, making one of the ordinary chances likely to come in the way of enterprising persons who thought fit to move at their own risk from one part of the country to another. It must also be evident that a high standard of political morality and consistency was wholly unknown at the time when Queen Anne came to reign over these islands. We have seen again and again in the course of Queen Anne's reign that some of the most eminent statesmen in England were habitually acting parts which at a more modern period would have been universally regarded as infamous. Men high in office who were pledged to the support of the Hanoverian succession were constantly engaged in secret intrigues with the Jacobites and with the exiled Stuart family. Among the ministers who sat in council with the Queen were some who concerted measures with her for the maintenance of the established dynasty, and on leaving the council chamber found means to acquaint the Jacobites with all that had been done, and to suggest efficient measures for a Stuart restoration. Much of this was perfectly well known to the colleagues and friends of those ministers and to the public in general, but no one seems to have thought any the worse of those who thus played false with the sovereign to whom they had pledged their allegiance. Such a course of action was only looked upon as one of the political maneuvers a clever man might naturally be expected to have resort to for his own private advantage and for the benefit of the political party to which his personal inclinations were given. Much of this curious disregard of political morality was undoubtedly due to the fact that the sovereign herself was well known to be at heart in sympathy with the interests and the cause of the exiled Stuarts. However that may be, it is quite certain that this system of double-dealing pervaded the whole political body at the time we are describing, and that the professions and the practices even of a man holding office were not supposed to have any necessary cohesion or correspondence. In our own times, it is quite well understood that the managers of a political party are free to enter into temporary arrangements and compromises with the managers of the opposite party. We do not regard it as anything dishonorable or even inconsistent that the members of a government which has just brought in some measure for the consideration of Parliament should enter into private arrangements with the leaders of the opposite party for the purpose of offering certain conditions by the acceptance of which it might become easier to carry into legislation the more important parts of the new scheme. 
Such a policy is now looked upon as belonging to the regular business of an administration, and the statesman is not supposed, and is justly not supposed, to have committed any act of treason to his principles or to his party, if he is known to have suggested or accepted any slight compromises not affecting the main principle of the measure he is anxious to carry through the two houses of Parliament. During the reign of Queen Anne, it would seem as if the private dealings of a statesman in office with the Jacobites at home and the Stuarts abroad were not to be judged according to any more severe principle of political morality. The fact that Bolingbroke and Oxford and Marlborough himself were sometimes engaged in such transactions was looked upon very much as we should now look upon the conduct of a minister who was willing to enter into terms of agreement with the opposition or the Irish National Party or the representatives of some independent commercial interest in order to make smooth the course of a complicated measure. The plain and obvious fact is that we have risen to a higher standard of political morality in our times than any which was thought of in the days when Oxford and Bolingbroke were ministers of the crown. We must judge men like Marlborough, Oxford, and Bolingbroke according to the accepted political standard of their own days, and not according to that set up by the moral code belonging to more modern times. The age of chivalry, with all its splendid virtues and its errors of an imperfect civilization, had passed out of existence at the time when Anne came to rule, and the new era of development was then only opening on the social and political life of Europe. The age of Queen Anne must therefore be regarded as a distinctly new chapter in the history of England's political and social life. The monarchical system itself was then, and only then, beginning to take that shape which has enabled it to become a powerful instrument in the development of political liberty and of progressive social institutions. England owes in great part to the influence of that age the fact that she was relieved from the terrible necessity imposed upon France of having to pass through the ordeal of a tremendous revolution. The reign of Queen Anne must always be regarded as one of the great historical eras forming the landmarks of England's progress in civilization. The woman herself, with whatever good qualities, was but a very passive and inconsiderable influence in the promotion of such a work. But her name is made immortal, if only by the mere fact, that it was her happy fortune to be England's figurehead at such an epoch. Her name will pass into history with the name of Queen Elizabeth and with the name of Queen Victoria. End of section 20 Recording by Pamela Nagami in Encino, California, January 2017. End of The Reign of Queen Anne, Volume 2 by Justin McCarthy.